Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good, terrific. All right. Everybody's all excited this morning. That's good. First Peter, First Peter chapter one. Uh, we've been going through First Peter since Easter. Uh, we'll be in First Peter definitely through the summer. I don't know exactly how long this is going to take. Uh, if you're visiting with us or just kind of checking us out, this is usually what we do. We just uh, take a book of the Bible and we just walk through it. We are looking uh, for glory in it. We open the Word, doesn't matter, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all God's inspired Word, and we're looking to see Jesus in all of it, uh, because when we see Him, when we, when we look upon Him, when we behold Him, we are changed. That's how we're changed. We're changed from beholding, looking at Jesus, and as we, with the eyes of our heart. And as we do that, through the Word and by the help of His, of his Spirit, little by little, God transforms us. And he molds us and shapes us into the image of Christ until on that last day we're told in 1 John that when he comes back, when we see him, it says we shall be like him. When we no longer see him in faith just with the eyes of our heart, when we see him with uh, our real eyes, we shall be like him, transformed in a moment. Uh, this morning, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, let me just read the text that we're going to be in and then I'll pray again and we'll kind of get into it. We're going to be in chapter 1 verses 13 through 21. Peter says this, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray one more time. Father, would you do that miracle again, Lord, where you open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Within, underneath kind of the subset of, of theology, there's, you've heard me say this before, there's systematic theology and biblical theology, and underneath the subset of biblical theology, there's what they would call um, like, kind of like person-specific theology. So there's Johenian theology, which is the theology of John, John the Apostle. He wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and also the book of Revelation. So Johannian theology is, it's not that he's saying something completely different from Paul or Peter, but it's, it's that specific, he, he kind of has things that he focuses on. Uh, so if you read John's gospel, it has a different focus than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In some of his letters, he repeats the same words and phrases. Same thing with Paul. There's what's called Pauline theology. Uh, and Paul, you know, wrote uh, more individual letters in the New Testament than any, other, than any other author. And so Paul has certain things that he hammers away at. Again, not different than John, but uh, just kind of a focus um, that he has. In the same way, there's what there's called Petrine theology. And it's just, it's the theology of Peter. 
that Peter here in his letters is primarily where you see it, although most people think that Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, also got uh, most of his information from Peter. So you see some of that Petrine theology bleed out into the Gospel of Mark as well. Now, okay, you're like, who cares? Okay, here's, here's why I want you to care. It's because I, 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 I say all that because it's interesting, and one thing we need to keep in mind as we study this letter that was written, yes, by the Holy Spirit, as Peter's already talked about, in this letter, but it's written through this man, through this man, Peter, that had these specific experiences and some very unique experiences in his, very, in his encounter with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago here on, the, here on this earth. And so, um, again, it's not like, I'm not saying that these guys are just making up their own thing, making up their own theology, but the way that they encountered God shapes the way that they talk about God. And, and that's true for all of us. And so as part of growing in maturity, what we want to do is we want to have our theology shaped by all of this book. That's why we just, we get in it every, every week and, and hopefully you do on your own too. And we, we read it because as we get this word in us, as we'll see in, like next week, it talks about this imperishable seed in us. It transforms the life of God in us. Now, what's interesting though about the text today that we just read where Peter says, you shall be holy for I am holy, kind of being the centerpiece of this text, is, is I don't know, do you, do you guys know, remember in the Gospels, when Peter first encountered Jesus? His very first encounter with Jesus. Most people think that it's when Peter um, was down by the lake also with, you know, uh, Andrew and James and John, and, and Jesus comes to them and he says, follow me, and they drop their nets and they follow him. Uh, or another time when, when Jesus asked him to, uh, if he could get in his boat and put out a little bit because there were such great crowds, and then Peter, J- Jesus preaches from the boat, and then afterwards Jesus does the thing where he makes all the fish jump into the boat. But those actually, if you do a study of like harmonizing the Gospels, which just means taking all the st- information that we have and putting it in order, like the life of Christ, those, that wasn't actually the first encounter that Peter had with Jesus. The first encounter that Peter had with Jesus is in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1. And it's, uh, it's unique. I love, I love this story. Okay, But just listen to it and I'll show you how it, I believe it ties in with what Peter is going to say to us today here in this text that we just read. But in John chapter 1, Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. And uh, in John chapter 1, I'll start in verse 35. It says, the next day John, John, the, John um, the baptizer, John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus, and he said, as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples heard him say this, and they went and followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And so what does Andrew do? He goes and he gets Peter. It says, he first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. So Andrew goes and he gets Peter. And he's like, we found the Christ. Come check this out. And so now Andrew's bringing Peter to Jesus. And here is Peter's first encounter with Jesus. I love this. I love this. Verse 42. And he, Andrew, brought him to Jesus. First encounter. And Jesus looked at him. And he said, so you're Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And that's the end of the story. Now, is that not kind of funny? Like, you're, you're kind of on this blind, that like somebody is taking you to, into, to meet this other person, and obviously it's not just a person, it's, it's Jesus, it's, it's the Messiah. 
And first encounter, you're like, you're all excited, and you're, you know, thinking, you know, what are you going to do? Like, shake his hand? Does he, does he fist bump? You know, do you give him a hug? Like, what, what do you do with him? And you just come running up, and Jesus goes, you're Simon, huh? Not anymore. Like, what? Like, that's not, that's not what I was expecting. But I love this. Because right from the get-go, again, this man who's now writing this letter to us by the Holy Spirit, he was, I'm most certain this is all of us, but he was shaped by this first experience, by this first encounter with Jesus. And the first thing Jesus wants Peter to know right from the get-go is, I have authority to completely change who you are. Your parents named you this? They said you're Simon? Well, guess what? I'm Lord. I'm Savior. You want to follow me? Not anymore. You're not Simon anymore. You're Cephas. Which translates into the Greek, Peter. And what Peter is going to say to us here this morning too is that just like Peter received a new name from Simon to Cephas or to to Peter is that in the same way for every single person that encounters Jesus Christ, he gives you a new name. He gives you a new name. And the name that he gives you is this. He changes you from unholy to holy. That's what he does. That's the center of this text here in verse 16, and we'll get there in just a second. Back up and getting the context. Remember, Peter's written this one long, in verses 3 through 12, one long sentence, and it's all indicative. It's all what is true. It's all of what Christ has done for us. Then last week, we just ended on this, and I'll pick it up there again, but in verse 13, now he's going to begin to give some imperative. Remember, the the imperatives always flow out of the indicatives. In other words, what, what we do always flows out of what is true what God has done for us. And so he finally begins to give some practical application and he's gonna tease this out for us here this morning. But he begins in verse 13, he says, therefore, in other words, all that I just said, this glorious run-on sentence about all that God has done for us, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're like, okay, I'm gonna do that. As much as I know how, what does that look like? Here's what it looks like. He goes on, verse 14. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. What does it look like when somebody obeys verse 13 and sets their hope fully on the grace to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ? It looks like a holy life. That's what it looks like. And so now, the very simple implication being, as we look at our lives... And whether or not they are holy or unholy, that will tell us whether or not we are setting our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? And when I say that, when I say that we are called to be holy, uh, I can only imagine what sort of images are coming into your mind or how that makes you feel when I say that you are called to be holy as he is holy. Because many of us have been taught that holiness is, yes, something God requires of us, but we have a, we have a faulty, weird, wonky, man-made, pharisaical, religious definition of what holiness is. And I don't know, we could spend so much time on this this morning 
But I just want to touch on it briefly before we move on and talk about what holiness is. I want to talk to you about what it isn't. Because holiness is not just in the way that you dress. Now, could you dress unholy? I, I, I suppose, maybe, in some context. But, like, it's not just in the way that you dress. It's not in whether or not you have piercings or whether or not you have tattoos. It's not in what denomination you belong to. It's not just in whether or not you've never taken a sip of alcohol in your life. Like, like we're told just all these these things about holiness, and, we, and, and just like man always does, we always start with the outward. Because that's what we can change. That's what we can affect. That's what we can handle. And so we go to work on that, doing this thing outwardly. But what Peter's going to tell us here, and, and the reason why I want us to understand this morning what I want to get across to us, is that this holiness actually leads to our happiness. It's good news. It's because where man can just focus on the outward and things just get weird, and I'm sure that we could all go around and talk about the weird experiences we've had with quote-unquote holy people, whether it be individuals or groups of people that say, this is what holiness looks like, and you're like, I don't know if this is holy, this is just weird. Anybody ever thought that? Because man's always, you know, dinking around with the outward thing, and God says, I want to change your heart. I want to change your desires. That holiness starts on the inside and something that comes out of us. And before we will be holy in what we do, and he does want us to be holy in what we do, we are first holy by what we love. By our passions and our desires, and this is exactly what he says. He says, as obedient children, and, and that, that's close, you might get the idea here, but it's literally, he says, it's more literally in the Greek, it's as children of obedience. That he's speaking, or he's not just saying like, I'm not just describing you, he's, I'm saying, he's saying this is your identity. This is who you are. Because of all that Peter has already written, remember, we're not just coming to this in a vacuum. This is why we got to come back and always look at the context as we move forward. But all of that, that glorious indicative, all, all of what is true in verses 3 through 12 of what Christ has done, the result of that is that we are now children of obedience What does he say, verse 14? He says, so there, therefore, do not be conformed to the passions. That word formed, it's it's literally the idea of a mold, okay? It's literally the idea of a mold, putting something in that mold. You know, I I mean, you know, like you play Play-Doh. Anybody do Play-Doh? Maybe if you have kids, okay, if you're an adult and you play Play-Doh, and that's just like a fun thing for you, God bless you. Um, If you ever played Play-Doh, if you have kids, remember when you played as a kid, you know, you'd have like these little molds and like a, maybe a little, you know, lion or an alligator or, a, you know, a dog or something like that, a dinosaur. You press the Play-Doh into that and you cut off the rough edges until you have this little shape of this, of this thing. Peter's saying here, this is exactly what your sinful nature inside of you, the sinful nature inside of you, as well as the world around you, it wants to force you into a mold. It wants to make you into what it wants to make you. It wants to shape you into what it wants you to be. And he says, do not be put into a mold. Do not be conformed. Do not be molded to the what, though? 
to the passions. This is speaking now of something on the inside. To the passions of your former ignorance. He said, you used to be this way. But now you have new passions inside of you and those old passions are dead and they are being put to death. You're like, well, which one is it? Are they dead or being put to death? And I'd say the biblical answer is both. But on the cross, I died with Christ, and yet these things are still, they're, they're still trying to, to come back alive. But we put them to death by not conforming to the passions of your former ignorance. And this is so interesting because this idea of being put into a mold, if there's one thing that our culture values almost above all else, our culture values the individual, Right? Or being unique, right? Like, like we don't want to be like anybody else. And so we go out, and again, I'm not, you know, whatever, do, do what you do. I don't, I don't really care. You know, so we go out and we, you know, may, maybe, maybe get tatted up or we, you know, try to dress a different way. We're, we're constantly trying to like, you know, some sort of, you know, image. Because we want to be unique. We want to be unique. And what's, what's kind of tragically ironic about it is that as we try to be unique just outwardly in the world, the more just like the world we become. The more into that mold we get pressed and shaped. Because the world can only change things outwardly, and as we only try to change things outwardly, we just become like the world. Holiness begins with a changing of our passions in our heart. So he says, do not be conformed to this world, to this former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, I love this, you also be holy in all your conduct. And then he's going to repeat the same thing here, and he's going to quote here from the Old Testament and back it up with Bible. He says, since it is written, verse 16, you shall be holy, why? For I am holy. Everybody say this. Say, you shall be, for I am. You shall be, for I am. One more time. You shall be, for I am. That's the way God changes you. You shall be this because I am this. And who are we? We are his children. Right? As obedient children, as children of obedience. That because of the gospel... That if you do not start with the gospel, that we are able to be born again, that we are able to be transformed from enemies to his children. And now whose children are we? We are children of the Holy One. And so he sends his Holy Spirit, his very nature, to live inside of us. Why? So that we can be like him. Not in our own effort, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, through his work, through an understanding and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And guys, we've got to get this down in us. And even this past week, you know, in here, again, this is like, he's quoting God here in the Old Testament, that like God is speaking, saying, you shall be for I am. But even this past week, as I was going about my day and just my devotional, I was doing my little E2 journal and stuff like that, and I was writing this down, and instead of saying, you know, you shall be for I am, I, I, I was saying, I shall be for you are. It's me saying it back to God. The same thing, just but kind of me saying it back to him rather than him saying it to me. And I shall not be just because I want to be. I shall not be and then I'll be, but I shall be for you are, for you are my father. And I just want to stop and say that if you have ever struggled 
with transformation in your life. Has anybody ever struggled to change? Yes? No? Anybody? Okay. Doesn't come easy all the time. Is that I would like to suggest and just throw out there that maybe the struggle has probably been is that because we've not been striving to be something out of who he is. First understanding his nature, his character, his identity, and then our, our identity in that as his children. But we've been striving to, to do something so that we could become something. And Christianity is the exact opposite. That he changes us. He says, you shall be why? Not because you're great, not because you're mighty, not because you're type A personality and you just make your little list and you just go down through it and you check the boxes and you, you know, just have your best effort. But because I am holy and I love you. And he goes on here and he's going he's gonna, to, again, he, what he's always going to do is, con, is tease out this idea and give us confidence. Give us confidence that we can be holy. Again, I'm telling you, if you understand this, this, this passage this morning, this is good news. This be holy thing, please, like if you're right now, you're like, this is such a burden, Eric. I can't do this. You're not, hang with me. Because you're not understanding it. But this is good news that we can be, we can be holy. He goes on and he says, if you call on him as father. So again, you had children in verse 14. You have father here. In verse 17, again, that's, we are his children and we shall be holy as he's holy because he's holy. Um, and if you call on him as father, now he's going to bring in another image though, who judges. So he's our father, but he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. And see, I, I, I knew it, Eric. You try to tell me this good news. Try to tell me this good news that, that God's my father and he's all lovey-dovey and, you know, we sing the song, good, good father, and it's all that. But see, there's this in there too. He's a judge. And so many people live with it. And this is, I, I want to try to clear this up for you. And I want to go on and try to explain this and show you from the text. I'm not just making this up. But like, does God judge sin? Absolutely. If you are born again, though, and you are his child, though, that sin has already been judged. It has been judged at the cross. Now, what he will still do in your life is discipline you. Like a good father will give a time out or maybe a little spank or whatever to their kid in order to correct them. God will do that for you, but you are no longer under the wrath of God. And so many people, we, 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 guys, we have to reconcile this. We have to be able to hold these both in the way that the Bible holds them. Because so many Christians in their life, I run into this all the time, almost always when I sit down and begin to dig in somebody's life and they're struggling with something, it all comes down to their view of God. And on the one hand, and, and they're, they're almost right, but they can't bring the two together. Is that on the one hand, they go, yeah, no, I, I know that God's my father. And so one day it's like, man, he really loves me today. And then they're like, but God's also my judge. And the next day they're like, ah, don't hit me. You ever been there? I've struggled with that. And what he's going to go on here, he, he's going to talk about how we need to conduct ourselves with fear, but, but I want to show you what he's really getting at and try to give you an illustration that will hopefully bring it home as to how the, he's, he's trying to get us to feel here. You're like, does the Bible try to get us to feel stuff? Absolutely. It tries to get us to feel rightly in accordance with the truth that we're, that we're being taught. So just hang with me here. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Well, how should we, what should we do? Ne next word, line. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Remember I talked about like week one or two, back in verse one already of chapter one, that we're exiles. That's the identity that he just hammers on over and over again through this book. So conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. But, like this, but this fear, we, we've got to rightly understand this. And he goes on here. Throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. And you, okay, what were we ransomed with? We were ransomed not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. And again, I, like, there's nothing more valuable to man than silver or gold. But Peter here, he, he says, no, they're just perishable. You weren't ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold. What were, were we, we ransomed with? Verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ. What Peter's saying here is that in the currency of the kingdom of God and of the universe, there is nothing, there is nothing more valuable than the precious blood of Christ. And since you were ransomed by that, we can now feel freedom. And that's what, going back to verse 18, it says, knowing that you were ransomed, that word ransomed, it, it, always, ha- it always ties in with freedom or with liberty. And I'll, I'll unpack this more in a little bit, but what, what Peter's probably alluding here to is, is when the, the nation of Israel was back in bondage in Egypt. And remember, they were ransomed out of Egypt. How? How did they finally get out? By the blood of the Lamb. Remember the story of the Exodus? Is that there were all the plagues and Pharaoh, he was hardening his heart. And he's like, yeah, you can go. No, you can't go. Yeah, you can go. No, you can't go. And so back and forth, and God is just systematically tearing down all of that false religious pagan system. Until finally, the night of the Passover. And God says, um, the angel of death is going to pass through the land. And you can be saved from it, but here's what you must do. You must take the blood of a pure and spotless lamb and put it over the doorposts of your house. And if you're under the blood, if you're inside the house, if you're under the blood, when the death angel passes over, you will, be, you will be spared. And so they do that. Those that did it live. Um, I'm sorry, the, the oldest son was going to pass away. But those that did, didn't lose anybody, they get up and then they go out and they walk in. They walk into freedom. And what Peter's trying to get across to us here when he's speaking of judging and being ransomed and this good holy fear that we're supposed to have inside of us is it's a fear that comes from having something that you so did not deserve given to you that you just, you're, you're afraid to, to mess it up. You're afraid to like, I, 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 didn't, I don't deserve this. I don't, I'm not good enough for this. Let me give you an example. It's kind of personal. It's kind of hard for me to share, but I'll share it because I really... as I was meditating on this this past week, this story came to mind, and and I hope, I just hope that it's helpful. But you guys have heard me tell the story before that, you know, I don't know, five and a half years ago, whatever it was, I fell off a roof and broke my neck. Wife and three kids, and couldn't, uh, um, couldn't work. Had a roofing business, was in a neck brace, couldn't do that anymore. Had a pile of medical bills. And a bunch of really kind people, many of whom are in here today. I won't go through and try to name everybody. They did a fundraiser for me and for my family because we were sunk financially. And, uh, you know, they, I don't know, did this dinner and had auctioned off items and, you know, and they, and they 
they put all these, you know, posters all over town, you know, telling people to come to this fundraiser. And I, and, and man, I, I would just, like, I'm, I was so, I'm very thankful. I never, I never told them to do it. I wouldn't ever tell them to do it. And, and I, what I want to get at, what I want to explain is, as best I can, I don't even know that I have language to do it, but I just want to kind of explain how I felt. That during that time, as they were doing this, and even the night of the fundraiser, it's like, it was just so, like, I, it, it, it kind of made, made me cringe, but I knew that they wouldn't have wanted me to cringe. Be, I mean, that was, the reason I was cringe is just because of my pride. Because <laughs> I was like, why, oh, I, I, you know, I don't want them to have to do this for me, and I don't deserve it. And man, that night, it's like, you know, people would show up and come through and come to the meal and you know, they raised a bunch of money and they just, because all this work, all this work that all these people did for me and for my family, like I can't, I can't explain to you like the way that that humbled me in a good way, in a good way, because I can be an arrogant jerk. And, uh, and God used that to humble me like that just, even just the thing of what they did, it just so humbled me because I was like, I don't deserve this. You guys put so much effort and so much energy into this. And so when they gave me, you know, that check of this money that they had raised, it was like literally like with a fear and with a trembling inside that I was like, I th- thank you. I don't deserve this. I don't know if I'm making sense or not. Again, I don't even have language to really describe totally how I felt. And that time, man, those people, everybody that did that, all you guys that are here that did it, like, I'm just so, like, I'll never, I'll never forget that. But, but please hang with me and get back to the text. But guys, how much more should we be thankful for the precious blood of Christ We didn't deserve a thing. Nothing. We were broken. We were paralyzed spiritually. We were in slavery. And Christ came with his very life. And he gave it up for us. And and if you know, you understand and followed me into what I, where I just took you there with that, understanding that, and where Peter's taking us in the text. Guys, that feeling, that's what it means to fear the Lord. You, you did this for me? What? That's what it means to fear the Lord. And yes, our Father is a judge. And He judged our sin on His Son at the cross. We were not ransomed. We were not set free with just money or silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown. In other words, he's talking about his godness here, his eternality. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He always existed. But he was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. And again, remember the context of who Peter's writing to, that he's writing to this people that are undergoing this immense, intense suffering at the hand of primarily Nero, the, the Caesar at the time. And, and it would have been very easy, you know, whenever we suffer, whenever something's difficult, I don't know what you'd be like, oh man, God, where are you, God? Why, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why did you allow this difficulty to come into my life? And we could begin to maybe fantasize or think about other times and places in which we would want to live or where we would want to be or, or somebody else's life. But, but Peter said, no, no, no. Uh-uh. No, this, he, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and he was made manifest in this last time for the sake of you, for your sake. The time and place in which we live now, even for us, even more so, 2,000 years looking back at what, Christ, at what Christ accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection, paying the price. And the church has always had to suffer. It's always been difficult. And the church and the, and the message of the gospel has always thrived and went forward where things were difficult. Because men and women like you and I are supposed to stand up, preach the gospel to ourselves, look at the precious blood of Christ and say, God, you get everything. You get absolutely everything. And we don't shrink back from declaring it because Christ Jesus did not shrink back one bit from giving us everything that he had. That's the way we're to live our lives every day. That Christ gets it all. Because as certainly as there is nothing more precious than the blood of Christ in all of the universe, all of the universe, so certainly have we been set free from our sin. And have we been forgiven? We've been ransomed. Our ransom is as certain as the blood of Christ is precious to God. And he finishes out here in verse 21. And it's through him that we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay? Peter is, again, trying to present this call to be holy as good news because we can. Um, and, it's all, and the reason we can is because of the blood of Christ. Just a couple practical things about holiness, okay? That... Again, I could have spent time on each one of these, but I just wanted to explain kind of the thrust of what Peter was trying to communicate there. But a couple of practical takeaways about holiness. Number one, holiness is not a passive endeavor. And again, rightly, I believe we should look at this and say, it's, man, we start with Jesus. We start with what he did. We start with the gospel. We start with what he accomplished. The imperatives flow out of the indicatives. What we do flows out of what is true. But guys, it's not a passive endeavor. We pursue it, and we pursue it by first preaching the gospel to ourselves and then taking you know, looks at hard things that God might be asking us to do or um, people that he might be asking us to talk to or lay down our lives for, and then we just do it, whether we feel like it or not, because we must be intentional about it, and that's what he's calling them to here as obedient children, what he's calling, what he's calling us to. Secondly, Holiness, it's not just that it's a passive endeavor, but it's also for all of life. It's for 
all of life. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And I have no doubt this morning that each one of us, including myself, we have areas like here on Sunday morning, this is holy time, baby. This is holy. I give this time to Jesus. But then there's Sunday night or there's Monday morning or there's Wednesday at 9.30 in the evening. I mean, I don't know. Every moment of every day, all of your life, every area of your life, every relationship, it is to be His. Amen? You have no right to hold back anything from Him. And we all do. That's, what, that's where sin starts, is that we want to be independent of God. We want to hold it back. But again, over and over and over again, as we look at the gospel, we cannot look at what Jesus did for us and then say, ah, not, yep, 95%, I'm giving to you, yep. Never. He gets everything. Be holy in all your conduct. Third, holiness isn't just about what you do, it's about who you love. And I touched on this already. That's where it starts is that I would say, though, too, even though you're being intentional outwardly and pursuing it outward to be obedient as an obedient child and whatever he calls you to do, but if you have an obedience problem, I would suggest, too, that you first have a love problem. And can I just say this this morning? Guys, do just, I, I, just, just be honest. Just be honest. It, it doesn't matter if you fool me. It doesn't matter if you fool your husband or your wife or the person sitting next to you or your kid or your mom or your dad. Like, it doesn't matter. For, for your own good and out of love for you, I ask you this morning, do you love him? Do you love him? And if you say, I, I know a bunch of stuff, but I don't really love him, just start there. Being honest and saying, God, I don't know that I do love you. Because you're going to continue to have an obedience problem if you don't take care of the love problem first. And ask him to change your heart so that you would love him who's truly lovely. And lastly, and I've touched on this already too, that holiness, and worship team, you can come up and we'll close. Holiness is not opposed to your happiness, guys. In fact, um, holiness is the ultimate means to your happiness. Um, that you are called to be holy as he is holy. Neil, you can come up. Were you just not listening to me? Or? <laughs> it's like, what's he doing? <laughs> Took another sip of coffee. <laughs> Holiness is not opposed to your happiness. And, and guys, as as you pursue holiness in that, truly, you're going to find a happiness. And I'm not just talking like chipper, superficial, um, you know, happiness, like real, real happiness. Because what happened when you became born again, when you believed in the gospel, is that God put his spirit in you and the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you. And he lives inside of you, not just to be resident, but to be president, to be king and to be Lord seated seated on the throne and uh you know there's some implications of this and and one of the primary ones being is that christian if you're truly born again if you're truly born again then you're not going to be able to sin and love it for very long 
So if the Holy Spirit lives in you and you continue to try to find satisfaction in sin or something that's hidden, I just, you got to know this. I don't, it might be bad news to you, but it's not bad news. It's really good news. You, you're, not, you're never going to be satisfied there. Never. Because the Holy One lives inside of you. And so as you, yes, at times it's hard, we put to death the deeds of the flesh, but as we put to death these passions, these deeds of the flesh that we lived in in our former ignorance, we also satisfy the desires of the Holy One that lives inside of us. And so our holiness and our happiness are not opposed to each other, um, but they meet, they kiss, they come, they come together. Um, and it brings a delight to our heart and to our soul. Um, would you guys just bow your heads and close your eyes with me for one minute as we close? Uh, guys, if, if, you're, if there's an area of your life that you know right now, I, it, it's unholy. It's not really questionable. It's not really like, well, maybe, you know, like you, it's, it's unholy. Guys, I, this, is, this is a good news invitation. Is I want to call you to turn this morning. To repent of it. To acknowledge it. Just be honest right now where you sit in your heart before God. That whatever area it is, it's not holy. Which means it's not fully His. Guys, we have no right to keep anything back from Him. And I just ask you, would you just trust him? Would you just trust him again this morning? And no matter what it is, no matter how deep and dark or bad you think it might be, would you just trust him and give that to him? And don't hang on to it anymore. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus, that we be a holy people set apart for him. Yes, in what we do, but first and foremost, in who we love. Father, we ask that you would just do that miracle again in our hearts this morning um, and crucify sin, crucify the flesh, crucify those sinful passions. And Lord, cause us to love you. You deserve it all, Lord Jesus. Be glorified in us. Make us individually and together as a little church body here in Berlin, Ohio. Make us a holy people. Inside and out, make us holy. Because you're our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.